Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first podcast of 2019. I'm excited to share some new findings with all of you and encourage you to contact me if you have a specific topic that you think would be interesting or you just want to hear about on a podcast. My email address is ahalladay, H-A-L-L-A-D-A-Y, at autismsciencefoundation.org. Or if it's easier, you can just use contact us at autismsciencefoundation.org. I saw a research study over the break, and while it probably isn't the most impactful thing you'll ever hear about, it has the right references to celebrity pop culture, so I decided to share it with you. Do you know what Amy Schumer and Princess Kate Middleton in the UK have in common? And probably lots of other women, about 200,000 a year. They suffered, and that's the right word, suffered, with hyperemesis gravidum, as we'll call it HG. To put it non-scientifically, this is when morning sickness is so bad, a woman has to be hospitalized because they can't even keep water down. It usually occurs in the first trimester and gets better as women go to their second trimester, but of course there are exceptions. And it seems to happen over and over again to the same women. Princess Kate suffered from it three times during all three of her pregnancies. Wow. So after seeing pictures of this going on and hearing women basically having to be hospitalized for days at a time just to get enough fluid in them and get food down, they're basically sick in bed. I wondered what effect it has on the infant. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a mom blaming exercise. I'm sure that if Amy Schumer and Princess Kate could avoid any of this, they would. This isn't something anyone can prevent. The best people can do is hope that it's manageable. Amy posted pictures of herself online in the ER with IVs and whatnot, but Princess Kate, you know, not so much. She didn't do that. You may or may not be surprised to know that it is pretty rare. I mentioned about 200,000 cases a year, and thank goodness because it sounds like it really sucks. So anyway, a group at UCLA was able to pull together information from women with HG, let's just call it HG, hyperemesis gravidum, and gather the same information from those without HG. It didn't come from medical records. It came from self-report data. They set up an online survey and asked the moms all sorts of questions. First, they asked if the mother suffered from HG, also what sorts of challenges their kids faced at eight years of age, and then again at 12, and the 12-year age range is what we'll talk about in a minute. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of collecting data in this way, but it's probably a good start. Some people would say that it's probably the best way to collect information straight from the parents. Now, I won't argue that parents know their kids best, but as far as specific diagnoses, well, I'm not entirely sure that the parents can provide that. Anyway, they collected data on moms with HG as their children got older and finally did another round of data collection when the kids were 12 years of age. They found that the kids whose mom had HG show higher rates of ADHD, anxiety, sensory processing disorder, social delays, and surprise autism compared to moms who didn't have HG. The effect of autism was marginal, but it was statistically significant. So what isn't associated with HG? Being premature, which of course is associated with ASD independently. So it's not like HG is just associated with everything. Here's the rub. Do I think that Princesses Charlotte, Prince Louis, and Prince George have autism? Well, I don't really know, but this study certainly doesn't mean that they absolutely will. But the issue here is that 
this HG does increase rates of multiple disorders, which if you listen to my year-end summary, are interrelated. Autism is a part of the ADHD, anxiety, sensory processing disorder spectrum. There may be similar risk factors between them besides just genetics, or a genetic factor overlaps with these things and HG. There hasn't been research into that yet, but obviously it won't be the same genetic factor in everyone because then everyone with HG would have a baby with autism, and that is not the case. There are a lot of other things that are going on that are important in an autism diagnosis. But I think we're going to see more and more of these overlaps between autism and other neuropsychiatric issues. Hot off the presses from Larry Skihill's data from Emory in a collaboration with Luke LeCavalier from Ohio State and other autism centers across the U.S., kids 3 to 12 years old show that there's lots of overlap between psychiatric issues and ASD. For example, in over 600 kids with autism, 81% had ADHD, 46% had oppositional defiant disorder, 42% had anxiety disorder. I can't say yet if ADHD is the glue or what, because it seems to be that ADHD is more common across all the different disorders, but it does reinforce there is scientific evidence that the disorders are probably related and obviously overlapping. Two other research studies, one proudly funded by ASF, focus those on low cognitive performance or low IQ and those who are minimally verbal. I said this once and I'll say it again, those with minimal verbal abilities are not necessarily those with low IQ, which is something scientists were able to better understand just in the last five years. And low IQ can mean different things to different people, but there are specific challenges in people who have an IQ at or below 50, especially in research. Researchers know from studying people with autism in inpatient settings that those with these cognitive disabilities have higher rates of self-injury and repetitive behavior and aggression. These things make it harder to get these people to do things like sit still. And if they have low receptive language ability, they sometimes cannot understand instructions of what to do. This obviously creates a higher level of anxiety that already previously exists. However, it's incredibly important to study those with cognitive disability and problems understanding as well as speaking language. Recently, a group by Dr. Miklay South at Brigham Young University in Utah were able to overcome these logistical issues and put autistic people with low verbal ability and low cognitive ability in an MRI scanner. They wanted to look at the brain activity and compare those with some people with autism with some verbal ability and an average IQ. Now, there were lots, and I mean lots of adaptation to the MRI procedure that was required. And if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. But basically, parents or caregivers could be in the room. They played favorite YouTube videos. They used weighted blankets. And nothing except for metal in the scanner was off limits. They were also given a lot of preparation and videos to watch at home. And the study invested in these noise-canceling headphones. MRI machines, if you've never been in one, can be incredibly loud, and it makes a really loud click, 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 click sound. Even with all those accommodations, those with low verbal and uh, cognitive ability did have greater head motion compared to normal cognitive ability, and that did create a problem. This is the same problem that prevented research in the first place, but they were able to get enough images to make some scientific discoveries. 
What did they find? They found that those with low verbal and cognitive abilities had poor connectivity between different brain areas, like those involved in auditory function, sensory function, and the default mode network, which involves thinking about others and interpreting their own actions. The deficits also include connectivity between the two hemispheres of the brain, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And that was compared to those without autism and those with autism with average cognitive abilities. This is important. While there were similarities in people across cognitive and verbal ability, there were also differences. It was like some of the deficits seen in autism were even more profound in those with autism and low cognitive and language ability. Now, research is hard, but not impossible in getting better. And research into treatments into those with minimal verbal abilities is also being modeled from those used without autism with some success. A paper by Tom Caravu published this week, and this one was the one funded by the Autism Science Foundation, showed that an intervention designed to promote social approach and reduce social avoidance behaviors, and this one was originally developed by someone named Alice Schillingsberg from Emory, was found to be feasible in minimally verbal girls with autism. That's right, minimally verbal girls with autism. This is a study that targeted those not just with minimal verbal ability, but also females, so that was pretty rare. This first phase of the research looked at four weeks, which did produce some improvements, but this intervention is designed to be much longer. This first study wanted to know if clinicians could learn it, how caregivers liked it, could minimally verbal girls even participate, would they stay in the study and for how long, and just to make sure it was worth doing in a larger study, you know, if nothing was going on at four weeks and everybody hated it, then maybe not do it for six weeks or longer. So the answer to all those things were, yes, they loved it, yes, and they could tolerate it for at least a month. So thank you to Dr. Caravu and Dr. Schillingsberg for their efforts with this normally under-researched group of people with autism. Thank you for listening this week. Now, next week or the week after, I hope to have the Gene Environment podcast I uh, promised you last year. Also, if you haven't read the year-end summary, please check it out on the ASF website.